the scriptures are inspired. Agree with that, most of you? A few of you? Okay. Six people agree with that. Good. Hebrews says the word of God is living. It's active. Okay. God breathed his life into the scriptures. So they're alive. You can think of the scriptures as a living organism. Well, that being said, if you cut the Bible in any place, it will bleed Jesus Christ. There's a movement today called uh, the Red Letter Christians. And they're basically trying to focus us on the teachings of Jesus, which, of course, in many Bibles are in red. Because they believe that many Christians have put Paul, Paul's teachings, above the teachings of Jesus. So they're saying, well, we're red-letter Christians. We're going back to Jesus, what he said. Let's focus on that. Interestingly, there's other segments of Christians that put the Gospels above Paul. You know, so... (laughs) You kind of have imbalance in various places, depending on what groups you're talking to. I am an advocate of a red-letter Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And the reason why is because if you marked in red every place in the Old Testament where Jesus Christ is prophesied about, foreshadowed, alluded to, Imaged, or where he speaks as Yahweh, if you mark those in red, the Bible would glow in the dark. Now, I was taught that, you know, the Old Testament is about a lot of stories. It's got the commandments, 613, by the way. Somebody counted them. And Israel's story, Adam's story, precepts, laws, testimonies, a lot of strange things, etc., etc., and it's kind of all over the place. And here and there, just here and there, you'll find a prophecy about the coming Messiah. You know, and those are there. Why are those there? So that you can prove to non-believers, especially Jewish people, that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, that's what I was taught. That's not correct. Jesus said, "All Scripture." testifies of me. This was fascinating to me. It may be to you. I don't know, but it was fascinating to me when I saw it. If you study the New Testament carefully, the Gospels and the Epistles, what you find is that the writers of the New Testament are often drawing from the same passages in the Old Testament, all independent of one another. And they're not just taking one or two verses They're quoting and citing from large swaths of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 is one example. Okay, Many of the Psalms. Many places in Jeremiah. They were all kind of reading the same script. Because they were quoting from the same passages, independent of one another. This is Matthew, Luke, Peter, Paul. And then they were interpreting those passages the same exact way, independent of one another. Now, if you think about this, if you ever get a group of people who are quoting from the same document, the same parts of that document, and they're interpreting it the same exact way, and they're all doing it independent of one another, 
you would think that there had to be a common source behind that. Right? Somebody had to have influenced them. And I would suggest to you that there was a common source. You familiar with the term hermeneutic? Somebody tell me what a hermeneutic is. Yeah, it's a method of interpretation. Hermeneutic, how you interpret scripture. Somebody gave the writers of the New Testament a hermeneutic, a common hermeneutic by which to interpret the Old Testament. And I would submit to you that it was Jesus himself. For Luke tells us that when he rose again from the dead, he met with his disciples and he opened the scriptures up to them. It actually says he opened their minds and he revealed himself to them through the law, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now those three parts that I've just mentioned are the three parts of the Hebrew Bible. It's called the Tanakh, the law of Moses, the Torah, the prophets. The prophets in the Hebrew Bible also include kings and chronicles. And the writings, that's the Psalms, the Proverbs. Jesus Christ took the scriptures and he revealed himself to his disciples through the entire Old Testament. And they in turn passed that on to people like Paul, Luke, etc. And so Jesus gave them the divine hermeneutic. And for Jesus Christ, this becomes very clear when you read the Gospels carefully, the Old Testament was a mirror by which he saw himself. He kept saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. A greater than Solomon is here. A greater than David is here. A greater than Jacob is here. And so I wish to submit to you that all of the Scripture, I'm quoting Jesus now in John 5, all the Scripture reveals, unveils, points to, testifies, illuminates Jesus Christ. That's why I said if you cut the Bible anywhere, it will bleed Jesus. But we have not been taught how to look at the Scripture in this way. And so we miss a lot of things that the New Testament writers say, and we miss the hermeneutic that they use to understand the Bible. Now, how does this relate to youth ministry? Well, if you really want to get your young people jazzed about the Lord, show them how the Bible is all about one narrative. It's all about one thing. It's all revealing this incredible, glorious, majestic, beautiful, radiant, unbelievable person. The greatest lover in the universe, Jesus Christ. And it will turn the Bible into 3D. So what I want to do is give you a little bit of a, a look into this, kind of a snapshot, okay? But if I had nine weeks, we could go through Genesis to Malachi and show it to you in every step, but it is mind-boggling. I'll give you a few snapshots here just to kind of give you the flavor of what I'm talking about. Remember that Jesus said, Moses spoke of me? He said that in one place. He also said... He revealed to his disciples, Luke says, revealed to his disciples himself through Moses 
the prophets, and the writings. If you look at the Torah, the five books of the Old Testament, first five books of the Old Testament, which is the Law of Moses, and you look at it on the surface, there's only a few places that speak of the Messiah. You know, there's not much. But if you read it with the hermeneutical key that Jesus gave to his disciples, it's everywhere. He's everywhere. Let's do a quick cursory look at Genesis 1 and 2. You talk to most evangelical Christians today about Genesis 1 and 2, and they will tell you, or at least their viewpoint is, well, that's fodder for the creation-evolution debate. That's what it's all about. Okay, that's what we go to Genesis 1 and 2 for. To argue creation versus evolution. Okay? And I would say to that, whatever you believe on that, it misses the point. God didn't put it in there so that we could argue creation evolution. Although you can use it for that, there's no problem doing that. But that's kind of misses the point. Genesis 1 begins like this. In the beginning. And the first thing we see, the first thing we're confronted with is light. Light that comes out of darkness. First there's darkness, then there's light. Right? God speaks light into existence. You turn over to John chapter 1. And John begins his gospel with the words, in the beginning. Identical to Genesis 1. And then he says, and there was a light, and the light conquered the darkness. And the light became flesh. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. He is the real light. So brothers and sisters, when you see light in Genesis 1, that is an image. It is a shadow of the real light that overcomes the darkness. Jesus Christ is the real light. As you continue to read Genesis 1, you find that it has a certain structure. And the first day, this happened. And the second day, this happened. And the third day, this happened. And the fourth day, this happened. You read John 1 real carefully, and he uses the same structure. He says, and the next day, this happened. And then the next day, this happened. And then the next day, this happened. Brothers and sisters, John is the new Genesis. And Genesis reveals the first creation. John reveals the new creation. All right, you move on. Day two, there is separation. God separates the water from the heavens, from the water below. There is a separation from that which is above, from that which is below. And I am reminded that death is separation. That's essentially what death means. Separation, basically, from that which is above, from that which is below. Now watch what happens on the third day. Interestingly enough, listen to this. Jesus said in the Gospels, the Son of Man will die and will rise again on the third day according to the Scriptures. But you cannot find an Old Testament prophecy that says the Messiah will rise again on the third day. Not explicitly. But what happens on the third day? Water covers the face of the earth. It's salt water. 
And if you read the Old Testament carefully in the New Testament, the sea, which is the salt water, often represents death. What happens is God pulls back the salty waters that are covering the earth and land appears and we have the very first appearance of life. And that life bears seed. Life on the third day. Brothers and sisters, can you connect that? Jesus Christ, who is the life, I am the resurrection and the life, rose again on the third day, and he multiplied. Except a grain of wheat fall in the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it will bear many grains. And he was speaking of himself. He was the reality of the grain. He was the real grain who was alone, died, and Paul says he became a life-giving spirit. When he rose again from the dead, he imparted his life into his disciples. Remember, he breathed into them. That's how he multiplied. The Christians were called little Christs. They weren't divine, obviously, but they had his life in them. It happened on the third day. And if you read the third day, look through the Old Testament, the third day, there's a passage in Hosea. On the second day, he tore us. On the third day, he revived us again. The third day speaks of resurrection. Then you have the fourth day. And on the fourth day, by the way, I believe Genesis is all literal. I believe all this happened. Okay, I don't think it's figurative. But in the mind of God, God is the great artist. And every artist puts something of himself and his passion into his artwork. When God created the heavens and the earth, they reveal the glory of God, right? He was revealing his son, the passion of his heart. On the fourth day, the scene shifts where? To the heavens, from the earth to the heavens. And he puts in the sky two great lights, the sun and the moon and the stars. It shifts from the earth to the heavens. This is ascension, the heavenlies. And Jesus is called the Son of Righteousness in Malachi, S-U-N. You know, think about the sun, what it does, what it means for us on planet Earth. If we didn't have the sun, we would cease to exist. We all depend on the sun. Everything we have in this room depends on the sun. In the same way, Jesus Christ is the sustainer of all things. He is the S-U-N. He is the reality of the sun. And then the moon, the moon has no light of its own. It reflects the light of the sun. And Paul says in Philippians, he actually says this, that we are like lights, stars in the heavens. The Christian has no light of his own, but he reflects, she reflects the light of the sun, the true light, which is Jesus Christ. Paul even makes mention, going back to the first day of the light, he makes mention that the real light on day one is a picture of Jesus Christ when he says in 2 Corinthians, God who shined light out of darkness, he's speaking of the first day, God who shined light out of darkness has now shown in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God the light of Jesus Christ. So right there, Paul is saying, hey, day one, guys, 
that was a picture of Christ. Fast forward to day seven, we have the Sabbath, we have God resting. And in Colossians chapter two, Paul says, very clearly, you can't mistake it. The Sabbath was a shadow. That was an image of Jesus Christ, the real Sabbath, the real rest of God. So Genesis one is full of imagery pointing to Jesus Christ. But it even gets better. Genesis 2. And I find Genesis 2 to be the mind blower. Genesis 2, God takes Adam, the first man, and he puts him in a deep sleep. And he reaches into Adam's side and he pulls out a woman. God splits the atom, as it were. And where there was one, now there's two. Okay? Now when Adam was walking the earth before this happened, he had a girl inside of him, but this was a mystery. Even the angels didn't know this. God knew. He had a girl inside of him. God puts Adam into a deep sleep, pulls the woman out of him. They look at one another, they fall in love, the two become one. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. All right. Wonderful story. I believe it happened. Literally happened that way. In Ephesians 5, Paul says some things to the wives and some things to the husbands. And then he refers back to Genesis 2. And he said, a man shall cleave to his wife, a wife shall leave the family, etc. And the two shall become one. And then he says, he makes this arresting statement. Behold, I show you a mystery. I am not speaking of Adam and Eve. I am speaking of the real Adam, Christ. And I am speaking of the real Eve, the church. And this is the mystery hidden God from ages before. All right, this is how it plays out. Jesus Christ was alone, just like Adam was alone. And God the Father put Jesus Christ into a deep sleep. The deepest sleep of all, saints, which is death. I want to remind you of something. I am not the one who calls Jesus the last Adam. That was Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, he calls him the last Adam, the second man, the second Adam. And in Romans 5, Paul says that Adam was a picture, an image of the one who was to come, who is Jesus. So God the Father puts the second Adam, Jesus, in a deep sleep. And there he is dead. And in his death, a soldier pierces his side, out of which flows water and blood. And all throughout the Bible, the water speaks of the cleansing of the Word of God. And all throughout the Bible, the blood speaks of redemption and forgiveness. And sisters and brothers, that side that was pierced on that day, on Calvary, was the womb through which the church of a living God was born. For when He rose again from the dead, He became a life-giving Spirit. And the only begotten Son of God became 
the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And she came out of his side, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, the mystery hidden God before time began. And when Jesus Christ was on this earth walking around, he had a girl inside of him. For Paul said, she, the church, was chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Let me give you another example. Jesus is baptized. And the Spirit leads him into the wilderness for 40 days where he's tempted of the devil three times. God led Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. And Israel was tempted. What's so fascinating about this, beyond the 40 days and the 40 years in the wilderness and the temptations, they're all parallels. There's no accident here. What's so fascinating about this is when Jesus quotes scripture to Satan. Remember, it is written, it is written, it is written. He's quoting Moses in the wilderness when Israel is being tempted. And he's quoting Moses saying that. So what do we have here? We have Jesus being the new Israel. And after that's over, he chooses how many disciples? Twelve. Why not thirteen? Why not twenty-four? Why not six? Because there's twelve tribes of Israel. He is constituting a new people of God. See, Jesus Christ not only completes the story of Israel, not only completes the story of Adam or reverses it as he completes it, but he replays it. He embodies it. He really does fulfill it. You see that? Okay, here's another one. I'll give you one more for good measure. Jesus is at a well. It's Jacob's well. It's noontime. And a woman meets him at the well. And they have this dialogue, which is fascinating. Jesus is the seventh man in her life. The seventh significant man in her life. The first five were her husband's who she no longer has. The sixth is the man she's living with, and now Jesus is the seventh man. And all throughout Scripture, seven is the number of finality and completeness. She is half Jew, half Gentile. She's a Samaritan. You go back into the Old Testament, and you find Jacob. He's at a well. It's noontime. And a woman shows up, Rachel, and he ends up marrying her. Now, brothers and sisters, that's no accident. That woman, if you look at her, she's half Jew, she's half Gentile. She represents the new Rachel, the bride of Christ, who's half Jew, half Gentile. And Jesus is the new Jacob. Now you can do this with all the patriarchs. Moses. Moses in the Bible is called a shepherd, a ruler, a prophet. And so is Jesus. Moses leads the people of God out of Egypt 
toward the promised land. And they are baptized in the Red Sea, to use Paul's metaphor. Jesus Christ leads his people out of the world system through baptism into the promised land. Moses built the true house of God. Jesus builds the true house of God. You look at Joseph. Joseph's a mind blower if you study his life. He's beloved of his father. His brothers are jealous of him. Same thing with Jesus. He's betrayed with silver. That ring a bell? He becomes a ruler. He's called savior. All that the father has is given to Joseph. Then you have Isaac. The only two people in the whole Bible that are called the only begotten son are Jesus and Isaac. Isaac is the child of promise. Jesus is the child of promise. Isaac has a miraculous birth. Jesus had a miraculous birth. Isaac was obedient to his father even unto death. Jesus was obedient unto his father even unto death. Isaac inherited all things from his father. Jesus inherits all things from his father. Isaac brings wood to his sacrifice. Jesus brings wood on his shoulders to his sacrifice. Saints, this is no surprise. And the New Testament writers are telling us over and over again, find Christ in the Old Testament. Open your eyes and see him. He's everywhere. He's the embodiment of the festivals, the sacrifices. He's there all over Genesis 1, Genesis 2. From Genesis to Malachi, all of it, most of it, should be written in red as far as I'm concerned. Now what does this do? It does two things. It opens up your Bible and turns it into 3D. Secondly, it puts you in possession of the hermeneutic that we Christians need to use to understand the Scriptures. This was the hermeneutic that the early Christians used. And thirdly, it sheds light on the glories and the beauties of Jesus Christ. And here's where I want to make my main point. This is the conclusion. I believe that modern day Christianity falls off one side of the horse or the other. In this respect, we either make God out to be the great cosmic bellhop in the sky. He loves everybody. Do what you want. What you do, how you live, doesn't matter to him. He died on the cross for your sins. That's all that matters. And so we have a generation of people, Christians, who are living in full-board lasciviousness and Libertinism, basically. That's over here. But on the other side, and this is just as prevalent, maybe more so, we have a God who's been turned into the great soup Nazi in the sky. If anybody knows Seinfeld, no soup for you. I mean, you mess up and that hammer's coming down. You have to do better than the best you can do to make him happy. And if you're not doing this, 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 or you're doing this, 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 he's not going to be happy with you. And what we have done unwittingly is guilt God's people into loving him and serving him. And let me tell you something about guilt. Guilt is the greatest motivator on the planet. It's more powerful, psychologists will tell you this, it's more powerful than sex as a motivator. It's more powerful than money. 
Guilt is the motivator. And many a preacher has picked up the tool of guilt to try to manipulate God's people, they won't use that word now, into serving God, loving God, and doing what's right. And saints, if you pick that tool up, it's going to backfire on you. There is something called the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but guess what? You're not the Holy Spirit. (laughs) If you want to see people stolen for Jesus Christ, if you want to see people fall in love with Him, give their lives for Him, it's real simple. Have a head-on collision with this Lord of yours yourself to where you're drowning in His beauty and glory, where you're drunk with His majesty, where you're in love with Him, and you pour that into these people, the people to whom you minister. You reveal Christ to them in such power and glory, they will fall in love with Him. And you don't have to use guilt, manipulation, condemnation, religious duty, shame. All that goes out the window. Reveal Christ to them. Show them who He is, how beautiful He is. That's going to mean it has to be real in your life. You understand? And I know for me, I had to step back. I had to come to a place in my life, early in my Christian life, where I said, Lord, I don't really know You. I know a lot of Bible. I mean, I had much of it memorized. But I don't really know You. My heart doesn't burn within me. When I read the Gospels like it did those two people on the road to Emmaus, their hearts burned within them. Why? Because Jesus was revealing Himself to them through the Scriptures. They were learning the story all over again with a new lens. And the lens was shining its light on Christ. So my word to you, my encouragement to you, is find Christ in your Bible. Not just the Gospels. Not just Paul. Learn how to find Him in the Gospels. Learn how to find them in the epistles, but learn how to see him everywhere from Genesis to Revelation. And secondly, I would encourage you to do business with your Lord so that he is so real to you, so that your heart has been touched by him. Get with him. Deal with him fast if you have to. And say, Lord, I need a revelation. Okay, that's maybe a spooky word. I need an unveiling. (laughs) I need... An awakening. I need my eyes open to see your glory so that you will pour out of me. And saints, if that happens, let me tell you, not everyone you minister to will be touched, but many will. The look that melted Peter, the face that Stephen saw, the heart that wept with Mary can alone from idols draw. Reveal him. Show him. And it will capture the hearts of the people to whom you minister. And even those who would reject and turn away, one thing they will say about you, they showed us Jesus. You don't have to be here!